Truth. How do we discover it? How do we understand it? And how do we apply it? These foundational questions of life can be answered in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. Through the systematic study of Scripture, we seek to equip women with a growing understanding of truth, which only comes by knowing the God of all truth. This is the Theology Matters Podcast. Welcome to the Theology Matters Podcast. I'm Laura Columbus, and I'm here with Bethany Drum. Hi. And with Marty Crabtree today. And we are going to be discussing soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. So to kick us off, I thought it would be neat if we could just hear briefly um, about your testimony, about how you came to Christ. Okay. So the brief version is I was saved on October 1st, 1976 at one o'clock in the morning. But I can expand on that a little. (laughs) Um, I was not raised in a Christian home. And by the time I was a young adult, I was very lost and very much a sinner in need of a Savior. A friend shared the gospel with me, and the Holy Spirit had prepared my heart, something that we learned when we talked about pneumatology, uh, the process of regeneration. As I look back on it, I know that the Spirit had prepared me um, to hear the gospel and to respond to it. And so I knelt down and I asked Jesus to come into my life and to save me from my sins, and he did. Awesome. That is wonderful. Thank you. Bethany, you want to share yours? Sure. Um, Mine's very different than Marty's. Uh, I was uh, born into a Christian home with parents that were both believers. And so I like to say, and it's true, I don't ever remember not understanding the gospel. Um, So At a young age, I don't know the date or the time, but I know I was probably around six. Even at that age, I understood that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Holy Spirit convicted me, and one night I just came to my dad and and said, Dad, I need to be saved. Um, And so, you know, he took me into his bedroom, I still remember it, and asked me different questions. And then we prayed, and I repented of my sin, you know, and my life looked different, I'm sure, at six than yours did, Marty, as a young adult. But the key thing is I was still a sinner in need of a Savior, and I understood that. And God graciously saved me at six, or five or seven, somewhere in that, <laughs> somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Mine, mine is very similar to that. Um, I grew up in this church, um, Emmanuel Bible Church. And so my parents were active in serving here. And so very similar to you, Bethany. I just, I don't remember a time where I didn't uh, know about the Lord or know the gospel, but my mom played in the orchestra. She still does play in our orchestra here. And so I grew up going to the Christmas and Easter concerts, and it was just my favorite thing. And I would go to like every performance of them. And so I think it was after one of those. And just as a kid, I, I don't know, I say six too, but I really don't know what age. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have a very vivid memory of, of laying in bed and thinking, 
yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Just like you said, it just, it all, I used to say, it just kind of all clicked for me. Well, guess what? That clicking was the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm grateful for that and the impact that our church had on me as a kid and, and still does now. So, you know, and, God. yeah, another, um, Similarly, well, my, you know, my kids were raised in this church and my daughter, Dara, it's kind of a similar thing, except for it came after VBS. And she was probably about the same age Mm -hmm. as we're talking about. And I knew like at nighttime, the week of VBS, she was asking questions at bed. And I thought, hmm, Mm -hmm. it's starting to click. The Holy Spirit is starting to convict her, starting to put the puzzle pieces together. And it was literally the next week, one night at bedtime, that she came to me like I had come to my dad so many years ago. So it's just a reminder of of the influence the church can have. You Absolutely. Know, in, uh, in yeah. And the influence lives. that the Holy Spirit has. That's right. Absolutely. Most Absolutely. Of it, the Holy Spirit uses people yeah. and, and the church. So Yeah. I've come to appreciate the work of the Spirit, you know, through theology matters yes. in a way that I never did before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean, true. part of me feels like we could just end there, but we're not going to because no, okay. we have lots to <laughs> yeah, talk about. We do about. have soteriology to discuss. <laughs> um, but that was a lovely way to start. So we're going to start more of our discussion um, with Marty. Marty's going to kind of tip off, tip us off. Um, speaking of soteriology through the lens of church history, but I think first maybe you're going to tell us just kind of more what is soteriology. Yeah, soteriology, as you said, is is the study of the doctrine of salvation. And recently, our our teaching uh, partner uh, Wendy talked about homardiology, the doctrine of sin. And I loved her comment that Adam and Eve were sinners because they sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Um, in other words, we have a sin nature that causes us to sin. And soteriology is what tells us what Christ has done for us to save us from our sins and our sin nature. And central to soteriology, of course, is the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus gave his perfect life on the cross for our redemption. And as we were talking about earlier, before we began recording, one of the things that I see with soteriology is it brings together so many aspects of what we've talked about over the past months with respect to the the doctrines of the church, because soteriology is salvation. Salvation comes through Christ. We talked about the work of Christ in Christology. Um, God is the the author of salvation. We talked about his eternal plan when we talked about theology proper, you know, and it goes on. So uh, as, as we have noticed more and more as we continue to discuss the doctrines of the church, all of these are intertwined. And I think soteriology is, is a good way to tie that all together. Uh, and then regarding church history, which is something I'm fond of. Is yes, she is it. our church history nerd. <laughs> she is. And we oh love that. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us well, about it. Tell you. us about some church history. Well, the church, church history, the church age began after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus uh, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. That's the opening of what we call the church age. And then empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, the 11 disciples, which were then by that time referred to as the apostles, 
began to preach the gospel, and thousands came uh, to faith in Christ as their Savior. So the apostles discipled other men, and the church grew. The apostle Paul became the central figure of those who shared the gospel and founded churches for the Gentiles, the Gentiles meaning those who were not Jews. Um, And Paul's missionary journeys are also recorded in the, the book of Acts. Uh, we read about the Phil- the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. I love that story uh, where Paul and Silas are in prison and there's they're singing and praising God and there's an earthquake and the jailer comes in thinking if these guys run away, he's going to be executed. And he falls down and he says, what must I do to be saved? And that really is the question, isn't it? And that is the question you know, ever since the church age began, what must I do to be saved? It's the question that we all asked ourselves or asked a parent, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is that simple. Mm -hmm. And so that is really the heartbeat of uh, soteriology, believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation. But also recorded in the book of Acts, And in the New Testament epistles is the amount of false teaching that began in the church. And as the church grew, uh, there were um, faithful church leaders, but there were false teachers as well uh, that popped up throughout all the New Testament churches. And I don't know that you can read any part of the New Testament, any book of the New Testament, that doesn't refer in some way— more or less, to, um, to false teaching. With the recognition of the canon of Scripture in 367 AD, then faithful church leaders had uh, the means at their disposal to combat the various heresies. And so what they did was that these church leaders would get together and talk about an issue that had come up in the church— and apply the scripture to it and, and talk it through and uh, discuss, the, you know, these heresies, what was true and what was false according to the word of God. And they, they put together, uh, after pouring over the scriptures, they wrote a series of creeds and confessions that were based not on the ideas of men, but based solely on the word of God. And these, uh, these creeds are like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we've talked about that earlier, the Chalcedon Confession. <laughs> or Chalcedon. Or Chalcedon, as, as some are say. Um, <laughs> uh, the Heidelberg and the Belgique Confessions, which I discovered the Belgique Confession recently, and I it's an interesting— I was going to say, I've, n- I've it, not it, heard it, of that one. It's a new one, and it's a good one. <laughs> all right, we're going to hear about that one more. Uh, time. But anyway, all of these point— pointed the church to faith in Christ and Christ alone. And I can almost hear the Getty singing when every time <laughs> I say that, but but that's the point, faith in Christ and Christ alone. So then in the early and Middle Ages, there was a rise of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church throughout Western Europe. And between the 5th and the 14th centuries, Roman Catholicism really became the only game in town as far as, as religious life. And by the 15th century, the Catholic Church had firmly implanted the unbiblical idea, the, the heresy, that the traditions of the church were more important than the scripture. And that was 
and that the Pope was infallible, but maybe not so much the Word of God. Mm. Uh, so that these traditions outweighed the, the Scripture. And the only Bibles that were available were written in Latin. The only people who knew Latin were these church officials and, and monks. And so common men couldn't read the Word of God for themselves. And so they, they just took what they were told. Um, so there are these extra-biblical heresies, such as the veneration of Mary, praying to saints, the invention of purgatory, this bus stop on the way to heaven, and the institution of this shakedown known as indulgences and, the, and other things that proliferated. Then in the 15th century, along comes a German monk named Martin Luther. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And as a monk, he could read Latin. And one day, after years of just prayer and tirelessly pouring over the Word of God, because he just had no peace about his sin. He knew he was a sinner, but he just had no peace uh, with the traditions of the church. And and one day he was reading Romans. Every, you know, there's a lot of Bible studies right now in Romans. Romans 1.17, which says, The righteous shall live by faith. And the Holy Spirit quickened his understanding, and he realized that it was the Scriptures alone that were the source of saving faith through Christ alone. And around the same time, John Calvin, William Tyndale... And others turned away from the Roman Catholic Church and began to study the Word of God um, and, and as the truth and the way to salvation and the providence of God. The Gutenberg Press was invented in, the, uh, in 1440. And so like, Luther wrote a German Bible. William Tyndale wrote a Bible in English. And so these could be printed and put in the hands of, of anyone. And so then people were no longer dependent on the Roman Catholic Church. And so this brings us to the Reformation. And when we talk about the Reformation, we're looking at a movement of the Holy Spirit in history to bring people to faith in Christ and to reform, which is where it gets the name Reformation, the Church of Jesus Christ away from the heresies of Roman Catholicism. Men like Calvin, Luther, and others wrote volumes uh, explaining the gospel and taking their concepts and convic convictions solely from the pages of Scripture. And these conv convictions were developed into what became known as the five solas of the Reformation. And I'm happy to tell you about the five solas if, if we yes, can do yeah, that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Take us um, uh, quickly through them. Okay. All right. So the five solas uh, were originally expressed in Latin, so I'm going to do the Latin and the English. The first was sola scriptura. Salvation comes through scripture alone. The Bible is inerrant, infallible, and the only source of truth for, regarding salvation. And that stood in opposition to the Roman Catholic teaching. The second is sola fide. Uh, salvation by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone in what Christ has accomplished for us in a substitutionary death on the cross. And this is what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It is that simple. Faith must have an object and the object of our faith is Jesus. The third one is solus Christus, salvation through Christ alone. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And in Acts 4.12, it says there's salvation in no one else because there's no other name given among men by which we might be saved. And solus Christus was the, the key regarding Roman Catholicism because 
Salvation is through Christ alone, not baptism, communion, confession. No works of ours, only Christ. Uh, the next one is sola gratia, meaning by grace alone. And the key passage for this uh, sola is Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. It's long. I'm not going to read it. But it points us to the truth that we are saved from my, our sin by no merit of our own, but only through the mercy and grace of God. And then finally, sola deo gloria, salvation for the glory of God alone. God's eternal plan of salvation brings glory to God the Father and the Son. And those are the five solas, salvation through Scripture alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Yeah, thank you for that summary. And I, you know, I was thinking, we, you had us do an episode on church history in the in season one of the podcast, and I think the reason we landed there is because so many of these questions that come up now about how must we be saved and those sort of things, first of all, they're in scripture, but also they've been tested over time against various heresies and and settled, right? And so it's so important to know kind of that history of of why we believe what we believe. It is. I think church history is for more than just nerds. I think it, it's, <laughs> I, I, I think it really does help us to to place our own faith in in the span of the work that God has been doing throughout history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to get you, I don't know, a T-shirt or a mug or something that says oh, church history so. is for everyone. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> bring it. Everyone's yeah, a church historian. No, maybe not, but... <laughs> You know, when you were um, on Monday, I just happened to be down at the Museum of the Bible with a couple of friends. Um, There's an Elizabeth Elliot exhibit, and so I wanted to see it. But uh, the Elizabeth Elliot exhibit is right near where they have a whole thing about the Gutenberg Press, and so I was reading about that. And one thing I didn't think I really appreciated, I mean, I knew it was a game changer, but it wasn't even just about, I mean, before that, people didn't have, only the wealthy had books. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, no common people had the Bible were at. They were completely dependent on what they were hearing from the pulpit and, of course, the Holy Spirit. Um, and so that was such a game changer, you know, such a game changer. And you're right. In God's providence, right at the same time, relatively speaking, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. as, yes, as he worked in Luther's life and, mm-hmm. and Bill's life. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, like shameless plug for the Bible Museum because yeah. they have a ton of church history mm-hmm. and the Gutenberg Printing Press, they'll do a, a demonstration of it too. I don't know if you saw oh. that. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. They don't sponsor the podcast or anything, but no, if no, anyone's no. listening and you want to give us free tickets, we'll take them. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we'll move it on. We'll kind of not change gears, but move on a little bit. And we looked at the order of salvation, which we'll get to in a second. But the text that we look to for that order of salvation is Romans 8, 29 and 30. So I'm going to have Bethany read that for us. Yeah, and I'm going to read it from the ESV. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you. Yeah, so when we 
Talk about those uh, words that Bethany just read, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Did I leave one out? I feel like I left one out. Oh, well, <laughs> we're going to get to all of them. But we call that the ordo salutis or the, the order of salvation. And that's just Latin for ordo, for order of salvation. And um, the order of salvation is sort of the process um, of which of how we are saved. And it's a logical order to it, although there's some chronology there too. But it's the logical order of what happens. Um, a lot of it happens instantaneously in the same moment. and uh, but it's it's a way to organize how how we are actually saved, how it's accomplished. And so we're going to look through that um, now. And when we taught this, I actually taught through the Ordo Salutis, and I, I told the ladies, don't miss the forest for the trees, because this is a big picture overview. And even what we're going to talk about now, we won't get to all the details, but we just want to take each of those words in the golden chain and just give you a big picture of what what actually happens to us when we're saved. And hopefully you'll be blessed by it. And then also we can give you some resources for a deeper dive if you want that. So um, Marty is going to kick us off first. Let me make sure. Let me say the words again to make sure I didn't forget any. So we have foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I think I did get them. So Marty, you kick us off. Well, if we're talking about foreknowledge and predestination, um, that for a lot of people, that's a full stop right there. Mm -hmm. um, people struggle with the idea of foreknowledge and predestination because foreknowledge and predestination uh, lead directly to uh, the doctrine of election and that God, that God saves some and not uh, not others, and that God chooses some, and and the idea of being foreknown and uh, to be predestined is that God chooses, and if we, if we look at the span of Scripture beginning in the Old Testament, God is always choosing one thing and not something else. Israel, one, Abraham, <laughs> David. Exactly. You're, you're right in the list that I was in. Um, Moses was chosen. The tribe of Judah was chosen. Um, and David, you know, and God's chosen people is what we call Israel. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7 uh, tells us that uh, God chose Israel because he chose him. He loved him because he loved him. That was his sovereign choice. Uh, and with David... Um, Samuel, God told Samuel uh, when David was chosen instead of his older brother that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God doesn't see as we see, and he doesn't think like we think. Um, so what, God, what, what does guide God's choice, his, his election, his predestination? Well, when we studied theology proper, and again, all these things fit together for us, we talked about the attributes of God and, you know, what God is, his nature and character. And we learned that God is transcendent, that he's not us, that he has a seity. He exists in and of himself. He doesn't need anybody 
else. He's eternally happy within himself. He has simplicity. He's omniscient, just, holy, uh, glorious, and so on. And he is exquisitely, eternally perfect and utterly fulfilled in himself. Um, he doesn't need us to be happy with him and his choices. Um, what God does based is, is based on who he is. Let me say that again because I don't want to lose the power of it. What God does, including his choices, is based on who he is, his attributes, his character, and he is perfection. There's no standard other than himself, so everything he does is perfect. Psalm 1830 says, all of his ways are perfect. And Psalm 115, 136 both make the point that our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. And regarding um, election, uh, Ephesians 1 tells us that he chose us, meaning uh, believers, in him before the foundation of the world and, accord, and further on according to the purpose of his will. In Romans 9, Paul makes the case for the sovereign will of God in the matter of election. So the whole thing uh, regarding this very uncomfortable uh, doctrine is that God chooses. And our job is to believe that he is God, he is not us, and to trust him. And Alistair Begg said, contentment is found in reaching the place that says, even when I cannot understand, still I can trust God. And so when we come to some of these difficult um, ideas, that doctrines uh, such as foreknowledge and predestination, which are part of the golden chain, mm -hmm. we have to just trust God and say God is sovereign. This is his choice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about everything you just said. I, I love how you linked it back to God's character because you're right. God is sovereign. We've talked about that before. And he's good. Mm -hmm. And so we, we can trust him. Um, we can trust him even in election, even yeah. in the difficult doctrines. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I probably should have included in that, that in that that list that God is good and he loves us. Um, and he makes his sovereign choice based on his, on himself, on mm -hmm. his perfection. Yeah, I think that's really good, Marty. Um, I will say that something that, uh, you know, as a six-year-old, I didn't, understand that but honestly when you came to christ as a, an adult like a lot of these yeah, terms you i know, knew none of it right um but it's something that i came to wrestle with as i saw in scripture um as a young adult and i will say honestly something that really helped me i've come to focus and understand more about the character of god but i i think it it's such an uncomfortable doctrine because just as humans you know, our understanding is limited, but it seems so unfair. And we also have a much higher view of ourselves than is, than is accurate. Um, and so uh, a, a friend of mine gave this example of, we tend to think of ourselves all as, as if we're like running towards God and trying to get to God, and he just chooses some. But, but the reality is that we're all running away from him as fast mm -hmm. as he can. And he mercifully snatches some. Mm -hmm. um, and I also came to understand that if he didn't choose me, I would never choose him. And that was, when that clicked in my mind, for me, that was like, 
it, w- it was settled then. Um, and then I've come to understand, more, you know, as I've grown more that, yeah, God is perfect and trustworthy and good. And so we can trust him. But I really had to wrestle with, like, you know, and come to understand if he didn't choose me, I'd still be lost and on my way to hell. So, you know. I th- you know, that's those are just all excellent points, Bethany, and I'm glad you said that because, you know, that really is a good balance to everything that I said. And um, and that, that God is good, he is wise, he's eternal, and all of those things in his character. But the way that we see that play out is, is exactly what you were saying, uh, that I think we underestimate how horrible our sin is. And I think that's another part of it. But, you know, Wendy talked mm-hmm. about that. In the morning yeah, well, you. you know, it's just like you said at the beginning, all of these doctrines are connected to each other. And if we don't have a good grasp on homardiology and our sin, then I don't think we're going to appreciate soteriology the way that we should. Yeah, so, agreed. So, yeah. But we will we will keep going on yes. the golden chain. Um the next word that we see is called. So for new, predestined, and called. And so um, there's this call of the gospel that goes out, and we are commanded to preach the gospel. We're commanded to put it out. And the general call of the gospel goes to everyone. But there is an internal call that hits believers. And so... Um, I'm, I'm just going to read a little part from Zuber here, but he says the, the internal call is the work of God in grace and mercy when he uses the gospel caller, the general call that goes out to everyone, um, and by the power of the word and with the drawing work of the Father to bring a person willingly and effectively to saving faith in Christ. So I think called is the next one in the chain because if God predestines you, he's also going to call you, right? He's, he's not just going to elect you and then not make anything else happen. So the call has to go out um, so that you know that you are a sinner and that you know that redemption is is offered to you. And then, of course— That goes back to when we were talking in our testimonies before mm-hmm. about realizing we needed to— we were sinners and needed a Savior, but also when we talked about, like you talked about and I talked about my daughter, when it clicked mm-hmm. as yes. you were talking about— that internal call. Yes. That was the click that I was yes. talking about. Yes. And along with that calling is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And that's, you know, again, we won't go into that too much. We got into that in pneumatology, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit that renews our hearts, that regenerates our hearts, creates in us a new heart, you know, turns our our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. All of those ways that um, the Bible says it that um, that's what happens to us when we're called, that the the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. Um, and that is the point of conversion where that happens with we walk forward in repentance of our sins and we place our faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of all of those, all of those things, when I linked them up, kind of went under the heading of calling. Um, so for new, predestined, called, and then 
justified. And again, hearkening back to old episodes and old teachings that we've done in Christology, we talked about justified. Marty talked about it a lot. And you know, the basic definition of justified is that it's a legal term that you are declared righteous, that Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness. And that happens at the moment of conversion. We're justified and we're declared righteous before God. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of other things that are involved in our justification. At the moment of justification, we're adopted as sons and daughters. Um, God is our father and we are co-heirs with Christ. Um, at that point, sanctification begins, the, another work of the Holy Spirit, right, that we grow in holiness, um, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So that happens at the moment of justification that, that starts that process. Um, and then the other one that we kind of talked about is perseverance or assurance of your salvation. You have that assurance. Um, R.C. Sproul uses the term preservation, um, and that has a lot to do with election. We can be certain that we are saved because of election. Um, there's no worry that we are going to somehow lose our salvation. Um, we have that assurance because we know that God has chosen us. And that, and, and that puts it, that preservation um, speaks more to an act of God, right? Yes. Then it's not us keeping our salvation, it's God and Christ keeping us. I like that term. Once again, R.C. Sproul. <laughs> R.C. Sproul for the win. Yeah, because sometimes we do say perseverance of the saints, which I don't think is wrong, but, but it, it feels but like it because put... the pre because of the preservation. Yeah, perseverance. We persevere because of the preservation. That's a great way to say it. Yeah, and you know this is this is the idea from John ten that you know Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice, and no one no one will snatch them out of my hand." That's the idea that we have this assurance. And it was interesting because I remember in class when we talked about election. It was a like you said. It's it's a doctrine that people wrestle with, and I'm glad that you put that out there too, Bethany, because we should be wrestling with these things. If we're you know if we don't know, we should go back to Scripture, and we can ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts. But I remember the women in class saying that the doctrine of election was so powerful to them because it gave them so much hope and assurance of their salvation. And that was really beautiful. And so I think for me now, I'll always tie the doctrine of election with that assurance that we have of our salvation. And Romans 8. Yeah. Yes, I know. I, I said adoption, but I didn't. It all oh, there's so much in Romans eight. Separate us from the love of God. You know it. Yeah, that is such a beautiful end to Romans eight, isn't it? It is. Oh my goodness. Oh. Yeah. And it, it it comes up to it, and I don't want to start a whole other new thing here, and you may want to cut this off. But uh, some people say, well, why should I share the gospel if if you know if people are elected? Well, Paul shared the gospel, even as he wrote about election and, you know, uh, in, in Romans chapter nine, that God says, you know, how do you question the potter when you're the clay? And um, so even though Paul absolutely believed in election, that's what he wrote about, he also shared the gospel. And so I think he is an example to us that we 
you know, if, if we don't know if someone is saved or not, we should share the gospel with them, including children or grandchildren or nieces, I mean, that's nephews. The, that's how God has ordained it to be. Um, and I also think of Esther and I, I don't know, Esther 4.11 pops into my head just that salvation will come from another place, but, you know, it's like y- you can be a part or you can obey. God's going to call and choose who he wants, you know, but, but you know, you am I going to be, part be of obedient? The am I going to yeah. be part of it and be part of that blessing? You know, I'm not going to alter God's... Yeah. Um, purposes, um, he'll still accomplish his election. Yeah. I mean, my, my friend, Anne, who shared the gospel with me, I'm sure she had taken one look at me and thought, you know, this is a lost cause. Mm. But she did. She shared the gospel with me. And, you know, I think we should do that, too. That's what we're called to yeah. do. And the gospel is good news. Yeah. And we just don't know. We don't know who yeah. who the elect are, but that's it's okay. Good news that God loves us and He gave His Son for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we have we have one more word in our in our golden oh, chain. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Actually, but it's it's a quick one because we I think we'll talk about it a little bit more in another podcast episode. But the last word is glorified, and um, again, I'm I'm just going to read from Zuber because I thought this was just a great summary of glorification. Um, But he says, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption and is a work of God entirely. It is the state of believers when their legal standing and justification and the actual holiness at which sanctification aims are fully realized. The glorified saint is fully conformed to the image of Christ and ultimately will be given an immortal body just like the resurrected body of Christ. So glorification has to do with our, our new bodies, which is just so exciting that we have that to look forward to. You know, it's that idea that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The glorification is the, the completion of the sanctification process. And we can just be so grateful that that's our hope that we can look forward to that day when we will be glorified and um, that we'll have a new body. That that blows my mind too. Um, so there's, again, a lot wrapped up in glorification, but that is how the chain ends with that hope of the future. It's a hope that we meet him in the air. Mm-hmm. We meet him in the air with those new bodies, supercharged bodies. That's right. That, That's know? right. And we will chat about that. We will. Right? Soon. We will chat about that in our next episode. Can I say something before yes, we close? Yes, Because you've mentioned Zuber a couple of times. Yes. And I want to be sure that for people who are listening who don't know Zuber from anything, uh, that we used as a textbook in our Theology Matters uh, course a book by a fellow named Kevin Zuber, Dr. Kevin Zuber, um, who is a professor of theology at, at the Master's uh, Seminary. And he's written a book called The Essential Scriptures, a handbook of the biblical texts for key doctrines. And it's a phenomenal book. And, you know, I'm not getting a kickback from Dr. Zuber, and, but I heartily recommend it because it's been a, a great help. It really has. It's been a great guide. 
Um, I'll throw a book out there, can I? <laughs> and then you can if you have any more. Um, in preparation for talking about the Ordo Salutis, I read a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. And it was originally published in 1955, but it's, it is great. And the first half of it talks about the atonement. So the things that we talked about in Christology, and then the applied part is kind of the order of salvation. So if you, you know, want a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these terms, of course, the Zuber book is amazing. And he pulls a lot of things from John Murray's book. Um, but that's another one out there. And I'll put them in the show notes so people can find them. Did you have anything else? Marty? Well, it occurs to me because we were talking about the character of God that the book that we used uh, in um, theology proper was um, Matthew Matthew Barrett Barrett's book. None greater. <laughs> there None it is. Greater. I knew it was. none greater. Yeah. Almost lost the undomesticated there. attributes of That's God. Right. That's right. It's, the... it's a phenomenal book, yeah. and it was so so helpful. Yeah all great ones and I will link them. So, uh, yeah, well, this has been a great conversation. I mean, is there anything better than talking about our salvation and how the Lord has, has saved us? I don't think so. Um, so hopefully it's been helpful. Um, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you'll see when new episodes come out. And on our next episode, we will have Wendy Blackwell back and we'll be talking about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So I hope you can join us. The Theology Matters course and podcast are projects of the women's ministry at Emanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia. Please subscribe to Theology Matters wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, please visit ibc.church and find the women's ministry page. We pray you will continue to study and understand the truth of God's word every day and see just how much theology matters in every aspect of our lives.